Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Rudina Osman, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yavamot, daf Tetvav, page 15. So the Gemara here is still in the middle of its discussion about Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. And today what it really wants to explore is, did Beit Shammai actually practice according to its own opinion? That was part of the discussion that we had yesterday. And today it's going to quote a series of uh, Breitot or other Tanaitic statements where it sort of wants to prove, based on the statement of quotes, did it follow, uh, did Beit Shammai actually, was it actually practice? One of the things that's interesting, or at least the two examples that I'm going to share today, which are the two uh, from the beginning of the daf, is it also tells us something about who sort of were followers, which Tanaim were followers of Beit Shammai and which, who were followers of Beit Hillel. So the first example we have here is Toshmad Amar Rabbi Tarfon. So come in here, and this is a bracelet that they quote here. Rabbi Tarfon says, so Rabbi Tarfon, just to give a little bit of a background, he's a third generation Tana. He's a Kohen, which is very important. Um, and uh, he, we will see, was actually a follower of Beit Shammai. And he says, Te'ivani matayitavot sarata batli v'asena, ema v'asiena. So he says, I yearn for this following thing to happen. When shall my daughter's rival wife come before me and I will marry her? In other words, the case that he's talking about here is, is that if his daughter was married to his brother, and again, it's unclear if this is actually true or not true, right? And his brother were to die, um, then his daughter's co-wife, right? His, her Sarah, uh, she could marry, he could marry uh, the Sarah according to uh, Beit Shammai in a Yibum marriage. And this is basically the straightforward opinion of Beit Shammai. But the Gemara sort of adds here this interesting piece where it says, say, and I will marry her off, right? That actually, yes, Rabbi Tarfon wishes this would happen, but ultimately Rabbi Tarfon understands that Rabbi Tarfon would have to sort of follow the opinion of Beit Hillel and actually uh, marry her off. Now, it's a very strange thing that he says. What does Te'evani mean that he yearns for? Right, uh, you know, Bahatavi, right? Like, does he actually want this to happen that his brother would die? I don't think so. I think what he's making a statement of, and it's a little bit of statement of hyperbole, he wishes he could follow the halacha according to Beit Shammai because in his heart, he's really a Beit Shammai follower. And so the Gemara here continues and said, Evani Kamar. It said, but he said, I yearn, meaning he's not actually practicing this way. So how could this be a proof that we follow Beit Shammai? La Puke ben Nuri. So the Gemara says, he says this to exclude the statement of Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri had an opinion that all uh, co-wives, all these rival wives would have to perform chalitza. And Rabbi Tarfon basically wanted uh, an opportunity to happen that the halacha is not according to Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. They would not actually have to do chalitza, but they actually could be married according to the opinion of Beit Shammai. But the point is, is that ultimately the Gemara lands on he didn't really, yes, he wanted to follow Beit Shammai, but he didn't actually do it according to Beit Shammai. He, really, the halacha was like Beit Hillel. Now we have a second example, Toshma Masa Bebitol Shereban Gamliel. So we have a story with Rabban Gamliel's daughter, Shaitan Nisuala Abba Achiv, who was married to Rabban Gamliel's brother, whose name was Abba. Umet below Banim, the brother died, Rabban Gamliel's brother dies without children, the Yibam Rabban Gamliel at Sarata. And Rabban Gamliel went ahead and did Yibam, with his daughter's co-wife. Now, this seems to be the straightforward opinion of Beit Shammai. So, you know, so it seems like we do put in practice Beit Shammai. Gamari says something fascinating here. Betis Rabban Gamliel, mitamide Beit Shammai. He says, wait, Rabban Gamliel is not a student of Beit Shammai. In fact, Rabban Gamliel is a direct descendant of Hillel. There are seven generations that go from Hillel to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And within those seven generations are all the Rabban Gamliels, Rabban Gamliel the first, the second, and the third, with the Rabbi Shimon's in between. So the point is, is that how could Rabban Gamliel even follow Rabbi Shimon? He is not, uh, sorry, how could Rabban Gamliel follow Beit Shammai? Rabban Gamliel is, a, they're Beit Hillel people, they're not Beit Shammai people. Again, a small little detail that you would have to understand to really get what this uh, daf is saying here. So now the Gemara is going to explain this case. So Rabban Gamliel's daughter was actually in this category of Ayalonit, right? Either a woman who couldn't have children or was sexually underdeveloped. It's not clear, right? Hamid Diktani Seifa. And actually there was an ending to this Brisa. The Acherim say, right? Other people say that actually she was this Ayalonit. 
Um, and therefore, then the Gemara's go on. But if the Brisa has this clause at the end of the Acherim, then that means that Tanakama did not hold she was an Ayalonit. Now, we learned previously that the category of an Ayalonit, right, actually um, basically allowed, because so that becomes a nullified marriage, so the co-wife would actually be permitted in a case of Yibam. Um, so the question here is, we have this Brisa that seems to tell the story, which is the Tanakama's opinion, and then Acherim come and qualify the story by adding she's an Ayalonit. And so the question is, what, what, what is the Tanakama? What's the case of the Tanakama? How could it be that Rabban Gamliel was really holding by Beit Shammai if the Tanakama doesn't have this sort of, uh, you know, added detail for being an Ayalunit? He karba velohi karba So the Gemara says that this, this dispute of the Tanayim, right, of the Tanakama versus Acherim in this particular Brisa was not about whether she was an Ayalunit. Rather, it was between them about whether the brother knew, right, Rabban Gamliel's brother, her uncle, knew she was an Ayalonit at the time of marriage and basically went ahead and decided to marry her, right? Because we saw the opinion before that if the husband is aware of this status before marriage, then it's not a nullified marriage and therefore the tsara, the co-wife, would still be forbidden in a case of Yibun. But if he didn't know about it, right, Velohi Karba, right, then the rival wife actually would be per, would be permitted because he didn't know that, so the marriage would be considered to be nullified, and that's the difference really between these two opinions. So in other words, according to the Tanakama, it would be that he uh, did know about this, um, sorry, it would be that uh, he didn't know about the status beforehand, and therefore she would actually be permitted. Um, now we get to another opinion. V vice Ama, if you want, you could say a different difference between the Tanakam and the Achirim, right? This one would be Kanas Ulavasov Gerash Ika right? And this one would be that of one who married and ultimately divorced. So that really what this issue was is whether a woman uh, is considered still to be a co-wife of an erva, right? Simply by the fact that she was married to a specific person, right? And whether she must uh, marry him at the time of Yibam, if there was a case that the other wife, right, who was the erva, was married and then got divorced. So in other words, if one of the wives was an erva to the Yavam and they got divorced with that sort of, and then the, the, the brother, you know, the person dies, the brother now becomes the Yavam, you know, does the fact that the uh, erva relationship no longer exists because they got divorced, does that mean that Sarah, the co-wife, now could do Yibam? Um, and so uh, they give another opinion. Ibai, same if you want. You could also say, Yesh tenai via eka Maybe it concerns a case where there's a condition about the sexual relations. So what this is talking about is the first Tana, the Tana Kama would hold, that Rebun Gamliel's daughter was basically married only on a condition, right? That there would be, uh, you know, s- sexual relations. And that, that actually never happened. And therefore, the marriage was actually nullified, right? The marriage didn't actually exist. So therefore, Raman Gamliel could marry the co-wife. Um, you know, it actually doesn't make a difference if the daughter was an Elionite or not an Elionite because they never consummated uh, that marriage. But according to the other tam- Tana, right, uh, even if the marriage was dependent upon a condition that was not fulfilled, in other words, once they had sexual relations with each other, right, um, it, 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 you know, that is, uh, uh, that sort of uh, would nullify uh, the condition and therefore, the only reason that Rabban Gamliel would actually be able to have uh, go into Yibam is because, uh, not because of the condition about whether or not they have sexual relations, but the fact that the daughter was an Ayalonit. And that's why the Acherim have to add this additional condition here. Um, so, but the point is, ultimately, is that we can't say that Rabban Gamliel held like Beit Shammai, because first of all, we know Rabban Gamliel is a Beit Hillel person. And second of all, the Gemara goes through many different permutations to show that actually this case was an exception. So, Anne, I know you're going to read a, a few more of these cases, um, but I think it's interesting to what they're trying to do here is go through many different examples of Beit Shammai, uh, of halacha like Beit Shammai, um, and to basically show it doesn't not even just around Yibum, we'll see in the next few examples, and basically to show was Beit Shammai actually practiced or was Beit Shammai not actually practiced. Whew, yeah, thanks, Jordana. I'm going to...
pick up on exactly this question of, you know, the many different cases that show up on the stuff that really don't apply to the Yevamot question and the co-wives, but do show, I would say, first and foremost, the far-reaching extent of the Psak, the different halachic rulings of both Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, meaning they are both so um, extensive, expansive, um, thorough in their handling of halacha, at least as far as I, as far as anything we've seen so far, you know that they talk about such a wide range of topics that then, when you want to say like, okay, but did Beit Shammai follow the rulings of Beit Shammai? To check that out really requires a whole investigation into a whole lot of different kinds of topics. So this stuff gives us a sampling of that, and that is, I think, helpful to answer the question, to address the question, um, and. Okay, and it's I guess it's one of those cases where like you really have to know everything to know anything because it refers to cases that are not really, you know, the topic at hand, except for that some of them we've actually already discussed. Speaking specifically of Matif Marzutra. So Marzutra brings right, he's responding to what's already happening on the DAF, but as far as we're concerned, we're looking at it simply for this question. So what hap what's the case? So what happens? The daughter in law of Shammai Hazakain, the Shammai the Elder, has a baby boy. I mean, she gives birth to a son. And then the question is, or the, the question of, you know, Shammai's approach, his Pesach and Halacha, Beit Shammai rather, right? Well, this is Shammai the Elder, so it actually might be his own approach as opposed to the whole of Beit Shammai. But Visikech al Gabe Mita Bishvil Katan. So, right, he has this opinion that says that, um, that, from the beginning, from the very beginning of life, the the boy is obligated in the midst of sukkah. So what did they do, right? What did he, at the time, right? Um, they took Shammai Hazakain. He took he removed like the the roofing, I guess, from or the mortar, the something that's above the head of where the baby was going to be, you know, and put schach there you know, on top of a sukkah. We did talk about this back in Masachat Sukkah. Um, and he puts it on top of the, like where the where the crib was, I guess. Bishfil katan. So then, you know, we could say, Shmamina asu. You see, Shammai did exactly according to the shita of Beit Shammai, according to the approach of Beit Shammai. The problem here is that the Gemara says, Hatam omer la ka'avid. You could say, well, maybe they were just letting in some, you know, to to clear the airflow or something within the room and specifically above the head of the, the, where the crib was to make sure that it's not too stuffy or something like that. Meaning the impartial observer who is watching the behavior of, you know, that aligns with Beit Shammai might actually be able to come up with a different explanation as to why this was done. Of course, I do think it's a little bit of, uh, you know, when you hear hoofbeats and you want, you know, you want zebras, but really what you have is horses. Meaning the obvious thing here, I would think, is that Shammai is doing is following in accord with his shita, his approach. But on the other hand, it is certainly possible that what you have here is, you know, zebras, that there's a different explanation for it. Um, the reason I raise that as a, you know, what's the most likely example is because really we have several different cases here, again, where isn't the obvious thing that what they're doing, what Shammai people are doing is following in that line with the approach. Why would they be doing something that looks like the approach if really it's not? Um, okay, next case. Mativ Marzutra Maaseb Shoket Yehu Shaitab Yushalayim Vaitain and Tkuvala Mikveh Vachol Tarot Let me go back and explain. We've got a case of, it's a water trough um, that had a perforation in the bottom Right, and the idea is then that the this is this is the place where they would bring all the vessels, all the utensils, everything like that, to purify in Jerusalem, and the perforation of Yerushalayim Nasim Agaba. They would, okay, I've said, I've translated this backwards, but that's the bottom line, right? That they would bring everything there to be purified, and also this is a case where the trough itself has in its base, I guess, or in the bottom of it, a perforation. Now, the Beit Shammai people came and expanded the perforation, that's the hole. Why is there a hole here? It's connecting the water that's in the trough with the water that's in a mikvah, meaning rainwater mikvah that does the purification. And that's why this is a place to purify to begin with. I'm sorry I've said this backwards. But the point here is the Beit Shammai thinks that they needed a larger opening, a larger 
place for the water to rush through between from the mikvah to the trough. It needs to have like a majority or a significant portion at least of the barrier needs to be a hole, right, to allow the process through. Now, Beit Hillel says to join a mikvah with other another water source, meaning to let the mikvah water go into another water source uh, or or collection of water. Right, you just really need the amount of a space of a hole that's two fingers wide. Let's say, meaning that there's a possibility of water flow, but it does not have to actually be large. But for Beit Shammai, they thought that it needed to be large. So then, enlarging the perforation there that allowed the water in the trough and the water in the mikvah to mingle should be, um, you know, a very clear. Fulfillment of the Beit Shammai approach, but the answer the Gemara says, "Well, maybe really they enlarge that hole simply to allow for increased water flow." Meaning the same way that you could say that the with the baby that the changing of the schach, changing of the roof over the crib is to increase airflow. Here we've got to increase water flow. It admittedly is possible, right? That there's other reasons you could come up with to enlarge that hole that go beyond. Uh, that go beyond this particular shita. Tashma. So now we have another case. Um, so Rabbi Elizabeth Sadok says that he studied Torah with Rabbi Yochanan al-Khorani. Rabbi Yochanan al-Khorani was known to be a Talmud, a student of Beit Shammai. So he says, Rabbi Elizabeth Sadok says he saw that Rabbi Yochanan Achorani was eating just dry bread um, and salt, right? Meaning not a very appetizing kind of meal. And there's presumably concern, that there, or his concern, is to make sure that he's not going to risk anything that's tameh, that's impure. But he comes, Rabbi Elizabeth Sadok goes, goes and tells his father, Amar li, bring him, as the father says here, bring him olives. He brought him to him. He, Rabbi Yochanan Achorani, saw that the olives were wet, right? And we've spoken before about how for something to become tameh, for something to be rendered impure, it first must be wet. And so then the fact that something could be wet immediately raises the concern that it in fact is impure. The fact that something is dry does not necessarily remove that concern because maybe it was wet and now it's dry. But if it is wet, so all the more so. But Rabbi Yochanan Achorani, um, presumably to preserve the respect or the dignity of Rabbi Lezer Betzardok, says... I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I don't eat olives. Not, what are you giving me, impure olives, right? There's a matter of, of uh, politeness here, I think. Um, again, Rebbe Zerber goes and tells his father. So Rebbe Zerber father says to him, go and tell him the following. It was a barrel that was perforated, meaning it had, um, you know, uh, I don't know what, a drainage system, right? It was not a vessel that's going to be a risk of impurity. And the only thing that like closed it into being a barrel is that the sediment from the oil itself or from the olives itself like made a, it, it clogged it up. And we know that there's a pile, there's a, uh, an approach here again that when we're talking about Olives that have been preserved in in oil, right? I mean, that's I guess how you preserve olives, at least for the the certainly in the ancient world and the the default, right? So Bishama says um, it doesn't need to be perforated to begin with because the juice that comes from the olives is not what makes them impure. Meaning, the joint juice, the olive, the liquid, the liquid here is not external liquid that is coming to make the olives impure. Rather, it's from the olives themselves. Beit Hillel says, no, says, yes, it does need to be perforated. Why? Because the juice of that olives is oil, and since it's oil, it would render them impure. Meaning, this debate between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai is exactly what does that moisture of the olives do? But the point here, then, is that uh, we have some concern now that um, Rabbi Yochanan Chorani seems to be following the concerns of Beit, of Beit Hillel, Right to say that, oh my goodness, maybe they're impure. Whereas presumably Beit Shammai would say, well, if there's 
if there's uh, the perforation. The, it doesn't need the perforation to begin with. Um, um, but Rebbe Behil does agree. But if it was perforated, meaning if the barrel was perforated, and in fact the sediment blocks up the hole, whatever, then it's still considered pure. Meaning the father of Rabbi Yochanan is telling his son to go tell Rabbi Yochanan Acharni that in fact it was perforated and that it's only sediment. That should be um, the position of Beit Hillel, right? Meaning, why, Rabbi Yochanan Chorni, you, the follower of Beit Shammai, why are you even worrying about this in the context of, like, you should be taking the Beit Shammai position? And the Gemara goes on to say, Even though Rabbi Yochanan Chorni was, in fact, a student, a Talmud of Shammai, he functioned according to Beit Hillel. He, meaning, in, as, a, as a matter of principle, he always followed according to so the point here then is you want to say that Rabbi Yochanan Achorani's greatness even, right, that this is what the Gemara says, right, that he's he's getting praise for doing not the approach that he really, you know, was taught by his teacher and so on, but that he's following the approach of Beit Hillel. Um, and then the point being, it, the the point of that is that Rabbi Yochanan Achorani here is presented as an exception, meaning here's a Beit Shammai guy who's following the Shita, the approach of Beit Hillel, and he's praised for it, right, of his own approach, whatever. But if everybody from Beit Shammai followed the approach of Beit Shammai, then there would be nothing to mention about then there'd be nothing to mention about Rabbi Yochanan Achorani because they all would be doing it. So the fact that he himself as an individual was singled out to praise for his following of Beit Hillel in the face of his true following of Beit Shammai um, teaches us that everybody else from Beit Shammai was following the approach of Beit Shammai, right? That's the goal here, right? The whole co- the whole question here, and Yerdena, you've already set this up, was to say, well, do the Beit Shammai people follow Beit Shammai, or do they follow that bakol that says everybody should be following Beit Hillel? Um, okay, the Gemara goes on, of course. There's more cases, but I think, you know, the bottom line is, at this point, we have an inkling that, lo and behold, you know, the Gemara proves to us or is in the on its way to proving to us that the people of Beit Shammai followed the approach of Beit Shammai despite or regardless of the the general um, general conclusion that we always follow Beit Hillel and that we have each each of these cases. And even if it could be read as an exception, it certainly looks on the surface of it that it's a following Beit Hillel. I'm sorry, following Beit Shammai, with the exception of Yochanan Achorani, who himself is exceptional, and then that makes the point. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Nee Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Hi. Okay, now it's done. I just want to do not disturb. Um, now the music is okay? I mean, not lack of music is okay? Yeah. Um, I would say that this stuff has a lot, and I'm going to just say that, okay? Instead of assuming that we're going to go through all yeah. of it. And that it's actually less. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um. Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masecha Ivamot, daf tet zayin, page 16. Uh, this page, actually, as in a surprising turn of events, although it does begin with co-wives and yibum, is actually rather rich in other stories. So we're not going to get to all of them, but I would encourage anybody who feels that they need a little break from Yevamot to kind of delve into this daf. I think the the material is there for you to probe other topics. Um, okay, now we have a whole discussion from the very top of the daf that leads into what I want to talk about, but I'm going to give us the context. Tashma, So it was in the time of Rabbi Dosa ben Herkinus, 
Now, this again is still talking about Bichamai and acting on the Bichamai approach, but the point is, the story is that it's in the time of Dosa ben Harkinus, and there's a, co- a co-wife of a daughter was permitted to the brothers. Shmamina asu shmamina, meaning so that we should conclude from this that the Bechamai approach is in fact what they did. It's in accord with their opinions that we've already discussed, right? And then the idea, so there we've got that proof. Now, the question is, the Gemara goes on to ask on this, Gufa, what about this story of Rebbe Dosim and Herkinus? Gufa, that uh, it, gufa really means like itself, like guf means body, but it means like on this same discussion that we've just been having on itself. So there you go, Yerdena, you know how right you were that at the time of Rabbi Dosa ben Herkinus, this is when Chazal allowed, they permitted the co wife of a daughter to marry a brother, to marry the brothers, right? And the the Gemara here says that this was difficult for the rabbis. This was difficult for the rabbis. And now this is why we're going to understand, you know, I, I've just now given your Dana full credit for understanding that, you know, the rabbis had a hard time with some of these cases, or if not all of these cases, really it's a little bit more complicated than that. Of course, of course. Because Dosef ben Horkinus was a big chacham. He was a big wise man. He was a scholar. So what happens? It says that he was a great sage, and he decided, And the fact that he ruled in accord with Beit Shammai was a big deal. But they had this challenge, and literally it was difficult for them. What was difficult? They could not go talk to him about it, because he, at this point, he was already um, quite elderly. And it says here, his eyes... Uh, um, his, his eyes... Um, his eyes were dimming or dimmed so that yeah, he, was he, was, no longer, he was losing his eyesight as an older person. He was losing his eyesight, but I think it's also, you know, it, sometimes this is used as a euphemism, right? To say that like he he couldn't really handle, I don't know, maybe he just physically couldn't get to the, to the Beit Midrash. Maybe I, I don't want to read too much into it, but I feel like why couldn't they have just gone to him if the issue was that he couldn't get to the Beit Midrash? So in any case, what happens is they were going to, Go clarify. They they do eventually say, let's go clarify um, what he, you know, with to him, right? Amar, who's going to go and talk to him about the fact that he needs to explain this, elaborate on this a little bit more? Amar lahen Rabbi Yoshua, ani So Rabbi Yoshua says, I'll go. me. And they say, well, who will go after him? Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Lazar ben Azaria, they decide that the Rabbi Lazar ben Azaria is going to go. Now, you will call. And this is really preparation for Pesach. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah was known at this time still. He was still a young man, right? And he was known for that youth. For that youth. And they say, Rabbi Aki, and so, then the, so, you know, on the one hand, he was this great sage. And it's always brought in the context of like, but despite the fact that he was so young. And then this is the line in the Haggadah. This is why I say Pesach. It was like I was 70 years old. Why like? Why not just say you were 70 years old? And the answer is because maybe he wasn't because he was actually quite young well, and his hair, story goes, his hair turned white overnight. Yeah. Right. Well, Remember, that's the Gemara in Brachos on Dav Chavchayin I would never have remembered the number, but yes, exactly. Rabbi Akiva. And so then they say, and who's going to go after Rabbi Lazar ben Azaria? And they say, Rabbi Akiva. So now we have here, you know, this this group of, of rabbis who are going to come talk to, to Doza ben Herkinus. They come and they stand by at the entry of his house. And his maidservant goes into the house. They say, he, she says to, to him, she said, the maidservant says to, to Dozeb and Horkinus, the rabbis have come to see you. So they, he says, let them come in. And in fact, they come in. So then, so, he, Rabbi Dosa ben Horkunus, grabs Rabbi Yoshua. Now, the the question is that we know that they already know each other, but is that because like he's the first one he could reach? Is it because they really knew each other and so he's you know being more friendly? They sits him down on a bed of gold, right? The the background to this, and perhaps we should have started with a with a who's who, is that Rabbi Dosa himself was quite wealthy, 
And, you know, this is the luxurious place that he's plunking Rabbi Yoshua down in his house. Amar lo Rabbi, amor le talmitcha, acher v'yeshev. So Rabbi Yoshua says to him, you know, tell the other student also, so that he could sit too. Amar lo mihu, and he says, who? Rabbi Dosa ben Horkin says, who is he? Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. They answer Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. Amar v'yeshlo ben Lazariah chavireinu. And so Rabbi Dosa, I feel like this is like Jewish geography, right? Like amongst Chazal. So Rabbi Dosa says, wait, our, our colleague Azaria has a son? Now, either that means he's been gone from the Beit Midrash for so long that he doesn't didn't know about Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, who, again, was quite young, or meaning so it doesn't mean that he was gone for that long if he, if he just didn't get the word of it. But it's surprising to me that he would not have heard of Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah because of his own stature. But this question of, you know, does Azaria, does Azaria have a son is an interesting kind of funny kind of question. So then Rabbi Dosa ben Horkinus says about Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, Kara alav hamikra hazeh, nar hayiti gam zakanti velo ra'iti tzadik de'azav, v'zaro mevakesh lachem. Right, so this is a verse that people know it from Birkat HaMazon, from the end of Birkat HaMazon. I was young, now I'm old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. It's a verse from Tehillim, Lamed Zion, chapter 37. Um, or Mizmor thirty-seven, if you prefer. So in any case, meaning this, this is this. Rav Dosa ben Horkinus is the one who applies this verse to describe Rosa ben Azaria, and the point being, being that here we have a Torah scholar, Rosa ben Azaria, who is the son of a Torah scholar, meaning Azaria, who is the colleague of Dosa ben Horkinus to begin with, and the idea that the children are never seen. Begging for bread, meaning that they are following in the, that they are nourished, let's say, from the same thing that nourished the parents, which is, in fact, in this case, Torah, not physical bread. So then he, you know, grabs him and sits him down on the same, on the bed of gold. And so then they say, Rabbi Yehoshua says again, like, you know, call your other student, let him sit down. And who is he? Akiva ben Yosef. So what happens? They identify the third person with them as Rabbi Akiva. And, and Rabbi Dosa ben Hurkin says to him, you are Akiva ben Yosef, meaning everybody's heard of Rabbi Akiva by this point. So which gives us like a, we can make a nice timeline here of like how old Rabbi Lazar ben Azari is to be this young and how known, how old Rabbi Akiva must be to, to have been this known. Shave beni shave. Kamotcha Yerbubi Israel. And Rabbi Dosa says to Rabbi Akiva, sit beni, sit my son, sit. Right? May there be many more of you. May there be multiple multi, may you multiply in Israel, right? Meaning that people should be like you, you, Rabbi Akiva, who's you know so known in this Torah. Okay. So now, and this is like, again, I say it's like a little Jewish geography. We've got this whole backdrop of how they came to visit him. And so rather than like delve into the question that they want him to clarify, they start talking about halacha. You know, just like, you know, shooting the breeze, but in, in lumdus, in learning, in learning halacha. And eventually they circled around to the case of the co-wife of the daughter. Amrulei Mahu, and they asked him, "What's the case of the co-wife of the daughter?" Now he's given the example, the answer that exactly we want to hear, right? Meaning he answers exactly what we know, namely, this is a machloket between Bithil and Bichamai. Halacha me, they ask, right? Who, who do we paskin by? Amar Lahen and Rabbi Dosa ben Herkin says, which is, of course, what we know. Everybody's supposed to be asking like Beit Hillel as a. It began today with a discussion of Rabbi Dosa ben Herkin is asking like Beit Shammai, which was exactly their question. Amru, So then they say to him, hello, but didn't they, everybody say in your name, they said in your name that you already said that the halacha was in the name of Beit Shammai. Amar Lahem. So he says to them, Dosa Shamatim, Obed Herkinus Shamatim. Did you hear that Dosa Ben Herkinus said this? Or did you hear just quote Ben Herkinus? And I feel like, oh my goodness, it's going to be a, mis- a case of mistaken identity. Amrule, they said to him, Chayai Rebi, Stam Shamanu. And they said, we just heard Ben Herkinus. We didn't hear Dosa. 
So he says, Amarlahem, he says to them, Ach katan yeshli. Well, I have his younger brother, Bachur, Bachur Satanhu, who is the firstborn of the Satan, which is such like, what a punchy line, right? Meaning the Talk idea about is sibling rivalry. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, that the language here is to say that he's very sharp, he's brazen, right? Like the idea that like there's a personality description calling his brother. I, I don't know that it quite means that he's evil, right? It doesn't have that that non-Jewish connotation of a devil, but it does have this thing of like being an antagonist, I guess. The Yonatan Shmo. And his yeah, name it is sounds Yonatan. like, and I sorry to interrupt you. I think it sounds like he's kind of the personality who like always likes to argue the opposite, right? Like he he's admitting that his arguments are good, but it's like don't get into an argument. Like he he knows how to argue and he can do it well. And not only that, Yonatan Shmo day Shamai, he aligns himself with this with the students of Beit Shabai. So he's the one meaning. Ben Herkinus, not Dosa Ben Herkinus, is the one who gave this psak that the co-wife of the daughter is is allowed because it wasn't even this, it wasn't even Rebbe Dosa, right? That's that's the bottom line. And so then he says, Rebbe Dosa Ben Herkinus goes on to say, the he's haru, be careful, and don't let um don't let him, don't let my brother. You know, pound you with halachot. Why? Because he will give you 300 proofs about how the co wife of the daughter is in fact permitted. Now, remember, Rabbi Joseph Ben Hurkinus himself just said she's not permitted, meaning he's not accepting the, these 300 proofs. But he says, like, don't even get into it with my brother, which I think, Yardane, is exactly the personality that you're describing, right? Aval. I'm going to go back and explain before I go too far. Right. So, and then he says, but don't worry about this. Meaning I will call, I will swear. I will tell you before with heaven and earth as my witness, right. That, that, you know, here at this very house, Chagai the prophet. Now keep in mind, Chagai the prophet is at the very end of the time of prophecy. And he has, so Rabbi Dosa ben Horkinus, who at this point is quite old, is saying that he has a tradition that goes back to Chagai, Chagai Anavi, the prophet. And he said three things of halacha. Namely, the first of those three things is Saratabata Surah, that this position that Bid Hillel takes is exactly the tradition that goes back, going back to Chagai, right? And then Amon Omoav Masrin Maser Ani. The second, and this is now a tangent, right? But that is the, the when you end up in the territories of Ammon and Moab, which nowadays we think of as a Jordan, really, right? That even though it's similar to Eretz Israel, they're not really exactly the same. So when they come to take Maser Ani, um, they do it. They end up doing it Maser Ani Bishviit. They end up doing it in the seventh year, in the Shemitah year. And he says, and the third statement by Haggai is that we accept the converts from the Karduyin and the Tarmudim, which I'm going to hold off on explaining because I know you're Dana, you're going to jump to it. But I just want to say like the end of our little scenario here. So then the Gemara goes on to say like when they came, they all came through that one entrance and they left. They left through three entrances. What does it mean that they left through three entrances? They're all looking now to find Rebbe Dosa's brother. And then, Pagabo Rebbe Akiva. Pagabo bi Rebbe Akiva. Rebbe Akiva finds him, or he finds Rebbe Akiva. And, and Yonatan ben Herkunis raised all of these objections that he had to the opinion of Beit Hillel. And he, and he, Vaukme, and he, Rebbe Akiva, uh, withstood them, you know, stood up to them, meaning, Rabbi Akiva was able to answer all of these complaints against the opinion of Beit Hillel that this very sharp, uh, you know, um, antagonist brother was able to raise. So at the end of the day, you know, Rabbi Akiva's defending the position of Beit Hillel, Amarlo, and then in the end, Yonatan ben Harkinus gets angry and says, Atahu Akiva You're the Rabbi Akiva whose name goes from one end of the world to the other? Ashrecha shezachita l'ashem you should be happy that you have a great name. And you have not yet reached the level of the cattle herders, meaning the cattle herders like 
we're not, it's again, it's like very sharp language to say, you know, they, the cattle herders were like, like just regular people, right? They weren't experts in halacha. They might not be literate, that kind of thing. You know, like, don't think that you're so great that the cattle herders would have heard of you because I'm telling you they haven't. It's that kind of like, you know, you think you're so, you think you're so great, but really you're not. And then Rabbi Akiva, who in general, we understand him to be a fairly modest person. We see, we see that with other Rabbi Akiva stories. And he says like, I haven't, re- you know, a not forget about the cattle herders. I haven't even reached the level of the shepherds, meaning, you know, that the shepherds seem to be even worse than the cattle herders in terms of, in terms of, you know, how, how knowledgeable they're going to be. So this idea, like, instead of being offended, let's say, Rabbi Kiva kind of joins him and accepts the insult to say, like, yeah, you're right, you know, I'm not so great, which sounds perfectly in line with Rabbi Akiva, as does the fact that he just wiped the floor with him, meaning Rabbi Akiva won this debate. So the fact that he has to, like, stoop to name-calling, you know, like, it, it doesn't mean anything anymore because Rabbi Akiva knew what he was talking about in halacha. So who cares if the, right, meaning... <laughs> I just find like I find that interaction in this particular particular Gemara to be, you know, somewhere between a soap opera and a sitcom and and very riveting because and it tells us the halacha. Right. And why there would be this machloka to begin with, which I think is also very helpful. Right. But it's it's first of all, I agree with you. It's very riveting. Like you could picture it out as a movie or a TV show. Um, But also, I think what's interesting is, remember, this is coming off of almost a daf and a half of trying to prove did Beit Shammai get to act like Beit Shammai. And the top of the daf is basically saying, yes, it did. Ben Dosa followed it. And then you have this whole brace of basically brought to be like, yeah, maybe you did, but really you shouldn't have. Like, it, oh, it undoes the proof that it settles on. It's, it's, the, the Gemara is very determined to show that we don't follow Beit Shammai. Correct. Yes, that seems to be like, Beit Shammai might follow Beit Shammai, but don't anybody else. Right. It, it, it's very clear that that's what's happening here. Uh, I'm going to move on to something else later in the depth, which was of these three rulings of Haggai, uh, the prophet, and where he says, right? We can accept converts from the Kardumim and the, uh, and the Tar Modim. And so the Gemara wants to, you know, questions this. Right? Uh, Rami Barichaskel says, we don't accept converts from the Kardumim. So the Gemara answers, Amaravashi Kardumim Itmar, right? That actually, this is a different word than what Yechaskel was using, right? One is Kardumim, right, with a Dalit. And really, what was staying here by Rami, what was stated by Rami Barichaskel was Kar. Duim, which is with a tough. So uh, it's really talking about two different groups of people. And then kids Amar Inchi, right? And now they bring another statement, Karduim Psulim, that these this other group are really they're considered to they're 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 pasul. Um, meaning they're they're and what they mean by being pasul is that these were categories of people who actually were some type of moms there and therefore they were not allowed to marry uh, regular uh, Jews. Uh, then they have another discussion here of Iki to Amri. There are some that say, Tani Rami Bar Kartumim. We don't accept converts from the Kartumim. My love Hanu Kartumim Hani Karduim. Now, and asking the same question, wait, are these the same group of people? One with the top, one with the Dalit, right? And so the Gemara answers, I'm a Ravashi, Lo, Kartuye, Lachud, Vakarduye, Lachud, right? They're actually two different groups of people. Kids Amri Inish, Kartuye, Peace, peace lame, right? And then again, quoting this. Uh, now they're going to talk about this group of the um, Tar Modim, right? Rabbi Yochanan the Sabia, the Amri Chabayim. So Rabbi Yochanan and Sabia both said, We don't take converts from the Tar Modim. And then now the Gemara has a contradiction here. Did Rabbi Yochanan really say this? We have a, a Mishnah here, and this is a Mishnah that we find in Nida, Masach Nida. On page 5060, any stains that are on a garment that comes from Rechem or Tahor. So what's going on here is Rechem was a city that basically had non-Jews on it. And non-Jewish menstrual blood is not going to be considered Tameh, which is very interesting. So if you had a garment 
and I, I also found this to be sociologically interesting. I mean, any of us who menstruate, me being one of them, like you would never like give a garment to somebody that had blood on it. So I, I, I just thought this was also interesting <laughs> in the sense of like, I think clothes were not as clean as they are today. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, 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 it's, it's very interesting, um, you know? So, but the idea is, is that because they weren't Jews, and this city, you basically could assume, primarily had non-Jews. Uh, they, they're not considered to be tame if you had a cloth from them that had this type of stain on it. Rabbi Yehuda says they're tame because actually the people who lived in Rechem, they're not non-Jews. They were converts to Judaism. They were converts to Judaism, but they abandoned. You know, they they didn't follow uh, Jewish law anymore. And so the idea is they're actually Jewish. They're just not practicing as Jews anymore. Um, but if you know that it is a, a cloth from some, an actual idolater, then it would be tahor. And we analyze this, we're analyzing the Mishnah's last ruling here, right? And it goes on to say, kapiske, right? Uh, the, the Mishnah says very clearly, vitani, right? These stained garments that are from the idolaters, right? They're tahor, but filamin tarmord, right? And this would include even tarmord. So the Mishnah doesn't seem to make an exception to the rule about tarmord. And therefore, it must be that people from tarmord also had to be idolaters. In other words, if they were Jewish, then it would be probably they would be considered to be tummy. <coughs> oh, God. You'll take it out. You'll take it out. Okay. Yeah. You're okay. I even have water with me. The Amar Rabbi Yochanan, and based on this, Rabbi Yochanan said, "Zota merit mikhaye remi tarmod." And so this would indic- this would basically say that we do accept converts from tarmod. So it, this seems to contradict Rabbi Yochanan's statement from before that we don't accept t- converts from tarmod. So now the Gemara needs to solve this. What you might say is what Rabbi Yochanan meant: "Zot," meaning this ruling that the these stained garments from Ovde Kochavim or Tahor, right, shows that we actually can accept converts from Tamord, but Rabbi Yochanan doesn't actually agree with this, right? He actually, maybe he doesn't hold according uh, to the Mishnah that converts cannot be accepted. But we know this can't be a solution because Rabbi Yochanan, and this is just an interesting halachic principle, right? Always follows the anonymous Mishnah. So he can't disagree with, with he can't disagree basically with the Mishnah's uh, ruling. So now they're going to give another one, another solution. Amurei minhu ba'aliba de Rabbi Yochanan. There's a disagreement between the Amurayim as to what Rabbi Yochanan actually said. So uh, that maybe really there's just two opinions of Rabbi Yochanan sort of floating around, and two different Amur, Amurayim have an opinion of Rabbi Yochanan. And so in a way, what they're basically saying is they don't even actually need to sort of uh, find a way to resolve this. I always find that to be an interesting solution uh, when the Gemara uh, gets to that, you know, because it's sort of like, how do you know that that it just must be? It's like, it's sort of, to me, that's like a very default solution. And then the Gemara wants to know why weren't they accepted? Me tarmod my time Savia. So there seems to be a machlokas between Rabbi Yochanan and Savia. Once says that they were not accepted of converts, because they were Solomon's slaves. So what does this mean? It's that basically the slaves of Shlomo HaMelech, of King Solomon, were very wealthy, and they actually would marry regular Jewish women, um, and their children would live in Tarmod and really consider themselves to be non-Jews as their fathers, uh, but really their Jew- their children were considered to be Mamzerim um, because uh, if a slave uh, you know, has a child with a Jew, uh, that that's not considered to be an okay union. So the Chadam are Mishum Benot Yisrael. One says that no, actually they were from the Benot Yisrael. So the Gemara asks the obvious question: Bishlama Lamanzam or Mishum Avdei Shlomo? Okay, the Avdei Shlomo opinion makes sense because Sabra Ove Kochabim. 
right? Because, you know, we understand that if an idolater of Evid or, or a slave, Habal by Yisrael, Havlad Mamzer, who has relations with a, you know, with a with a Jewish woman, that child is going to be Mamzer. How could Benot Yerushalayim be a problem? So now we'll have another machlokas between Rabbi Yosef and Rabbanan. Um, and both of them, okay, say their opinion in the name of Rabba One said the problem was created by 12,000 footmen and 6,000 archers. And one says it was by 12,000 men, 6,000 of whom were archers. But the point here is, and that's what's interesting, it's like the Machlokas is over the numbers. I don't quite understand how they would know this at all. But they're talking about the destruction of the first temple here. When the Ovde Kochabim, when the idolaters went into the sanctuary, Hakol Nifnu Al Kesem Everybody was paying attention to the gold, silver and gold. Behem Nifnu Al Yerushalayim. And they turned their attention to Jerusalem. Now, they don't identify who the Hakol is. I actually think that Hakol is talking about the Jewish people and saying like they were more worried about the content of what was happening to the temple. They did their own people. And so therefore what happened, basically the Benot Yerushalayim, uh, you know, they were basically, they were basically taken by these soldiers. And so here they quote a pasuk that said, uh, they, they quote a pasuk here um, from uh, Eicha, chapter 5, verse 11, that says they ravaged women in Zion, uh, maidens in the towns of Yehuda. Um, and uh, it's just, you know, it, it, it's sort of, and this is why Tarmod or, you know, the, the Tarmodim are not really accepted. We're going to talk a little bit more about this tomorrow. It's going to get into some interesting bottom of this stuff, but I'm going to save it for tomorrow about the 10 tribes. But I, I think what we see interesting here is, you know, there's sort of an acknowledgement that like the Jewish lineage has not always been kept intact, that we have been subject to, you know, uh, uh, violation because of, you know, being, uh, you know, with by Risham, for example, by being overtaken and and what happens to women in those types of the violence that often we see that unfortunately in today's world that's perpetrated towards women in war. Um, it's interesting that this discussion shows up here in Masachat Yavamot, where the theme of this mitzvah is about maintaining the lineage of the brother. And so now we're going to have a few dapim that get into a discussion about uh, lineage that we maybe can't necessarily trust so well. Uh, so I, I just found the placement in this Masachat to, to also make a little bit of sense. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. thinking that also, like... This make I, I don't know that it had to be this do, this particular page is a different page that I don't know that I would have gotten to except for of course the statements of of Chagai Hanavi but um but yes it made perfect sense to me that it be in the discussion like the the bigger picture discussion of what's happening with Yibum and and lineage. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.